everyone. Thanks for joining. Today, I'm speaking with Grace. I started following Grace. I saw her on Twitter, and she'd done a thread about how call it whatever you want, woke, critical social justice was encroaching in her business and how she pushed back against it. And it was a really good thread. Um, anyways, great. Thank you for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me. So if you wouldn't mind going through like what had happened with your business and like I correct me if I'm wrong, like it was your business, right? A nonprofit organization. Yeah, I'm okay. one of the co-founders. Okay. So yeah, if you wouldn't mind like letting people know what had happened and like how it all just came about. Right. Um, so it was over the course of several years, really. I, I condensed a lot of history down into a short um, thread as we have to kind of do for Twitter. Yeah. But um, yeah, it was, I think how many people have experienced just intuiting that there was this other way of knowing that was being expressed in certain rhetoric and um, kind of a, a um, attitude that was showing up at our workplace. And it took a while actually to even figure out what it was. And I, I heard you kind of um, grappling with the language there, like what even is this thing that we're describing? And I think that that's a real, um, a real, I wouldn't say problem, but it, it is a factor in, in figuring out how to address the thing is even being able to name what it is. But um, essentially, yes, it is critical social justice and this idea that a person can gain a critical consciousness that enables them to see systems of power and oppression and these structures that are built um, within these systems of power and oppression that are oppressing certain people and benefiting other people based on identity categories. But I mean, at first, when when the it was just rhetoric that we were hearing and um, these attitudes that were at varying degrees of aggression, um, we wouldn't have been able to verbalize any of that. It just was the sense that, oh, like there's a lot of passion around, um, you know, justice and that's good. And, and we like justice too. And that's why we started our nonprofit organization. But just being unfamiliar with some of the, the language and had to start digging into um, the claims that were being made. And, and that kind of led me into the journey that I described in my Twitter thread of understanding that there was sort of a whole philosophical structure underneath these ideas that the proponents of some of these ideas themselves weren't even necessarily aware of entirely. And yet it was motivating their uh, approach to solving problems of injustice in the world. Just one question. Like, you said you started noticing this over a period of time, like rough, you know, like ballpark around when did you start seeing a shift of when people were talking about social justice? It wasn't quite what you thought about, or like, you know, just any term, like, you know, racism went from being don't be prejudiced based on race to prejudice plus power. Like, so when, like, when did you yeah. start like roughly around what time did you start noticing those shifts? Um, well, I live in a very, um, socially and politically progressive part of the world in the Pacific Northwest. So honestly, this, this language and this, um, I was familiar with the language, not, not familiar with the ideas behind the language for, I don't know, many years now at this point, but within our organization, the real, um, 
the motivation of our individual team members to sort of transform the way we thought about our work at the organization that began, I would say probably about four years ago or so. Um, and we were, we were forced into examining the ideas closely because what was, what was being asked of us was to fundamentally change sort of how we go about doing our work and the way we thought about doing um, the work of trauma care, which is what our organization does. So um, we, we had to begin really addressing these claims that were being made. Okay, so if you can just get into a little bit of what was, because you mentioned trauma care. So, I mean, that's one of the things I've noticed, and I've spoken to a couple of people about this, and it's the way trauma is being used is being changed. Yep. And I mean, I've used this example for myself and okay, like I'm, you know, I preface this by like, I'm not claiming any kind of PTSD or trauma or anything here, but it's just like a very mild example of this. Okay. Like it's, so I worked in war zones and, you know, every couple of months, every few months we'd get a refresher on mind awareness training. So where to walk, where not to walk, what to look out for, be alert. And then when I was in Afghanistan, a lot of it was also IEDs. So keep an eye out for anything that's out of the ordinary. There could be roadside bombs. So you're always on alert. And every time you left the base, you got a little refresher on that to make sure you was stuck in your head. So for the first six months after I left Afghanistan, so like all in all, over a 10-year period, I was there seven years about. Um, so like the last time I left there, I came back home and that was the last time I worked overseas. For roughly about six months, I wouldn't walk on anything except for like asphalt or cement or concrete. Like I wouldn't walk, yeah. like it just wouldn't. And it took me probably about a year to stop feeling uncomfortable about it. So like I said, I'm not claiming trauma or anything like that, but the way I see trauma being used, it's, you know, they're, I mean, they're overusing this term and it's actually like, I mean, there is valid trauma. There is, I mean, yeah. you know, there's a lot of serious stuff with it. And it, mm -hmm. and to me, it just seems like it's being dropped, you know, used at the drop of a hat and mm -hmm. the way they're changing what harm is. Mm -hmm. And it's so right. Like, like if you wouldn't mind talking a bit about that and like you were talking right. about an underlying philosophy. So if you can get back into that, like how that mm -hmm. worked. Right. Um, so I think where I began to discern the shift was away from the individual and towards the collective in mm -hmm. terms of how we think about trauma. Um, so you're absolutely right, there is real trauma. Um, and there is a sense in which we need to take care when engaging with people who have experienced real trauma and, and be careful not to re-traumatize or to be insensitive to the traumas that people have experienced. But what's, what's happening and what I, I began to understand um, was that emphasizing the individual's experience of trauma was seen as inappropriate almost um, in that group identities, there, there's, there's real trauma connected to a person's social location that even if they, they wouldn't say that that group identity adds to their trauma, they don't even really get to say that. Like there, there is this sense that, um, a person who, you know, let's say a woman um, doesn't see herself as a victim of trauma or, or a victim of oppression as a result of men is just blinding herself to the fact that no, actually she 
she is just unaware of how she is oppressed by by the patriarchal structures of society or whatever. So then the same could be applied to, um, you know, a non-white person, you know, if they don't see themselves as a, a um, suffering from oppression as a result of um, whiteness in the world is that that person just doesn't understand their oppression. Um, and so it, it sort of removes the locus of control from the individual and it says, no, actually there are these oppressive structures and it doesn't really matter whether you recognize them or not, they are oppressive. Um, whereas traditionally um, in trauma work, there, there's a, a, a heavy emphasis on the individual's experience of trauma because two people can experience a traumatic event in vastly different ways and how that will impact them going forward. Um, so, you know, if you and I were both in a car accident and it was a terrible accident, but for whatever reasons, for your resiliencies that you have from your relationships, from your faith, from your values, all of that, if you, you're able to get up from that accident and sort of brush off the dust and walk away and be like, Ooh, that was rough, but I'm going to be fine. And I might walk away from that accident paralyzed for the rest of my life with fear and unable to ever get in a car again. And we experienced the same event, but it was the meaning that we made of that event that was our trauma going forward. Um, and so that individual experience is what's so important to, to address and, and to, um, to take into account. But this, this idea that um, historical traumas, which are real, you know, there are traumas that have affected groups of people based on their identities, but that, that, now we need to see that whether or not people recognize that they are a part of an, a group that has been historically oppressed or traumatized in different ways, that is a, a central part of their identity in the world. And the people who aren't owning that are, are in denial, in a sense. Um, and so we, we didn't like that at all. We thought that that was that was antithetical to a strengths-based approach to trauma, which says, hey, yeah, like all, all of us have, you know, go, if you go back in history, um, our ancestors have experienced things, our, you know, group identities in different ways connect us to different kinds of discrimination or trauma, but people are very strong and resilient and people, um, people, uh people are able to move forward in different ways and so we want to really honor the individual and their experience of trauma um and then that was it was told to us that a hyper focus on the individual or even just a focus on the individual was a white way of thinking so it, again it's like everything becomes this this and you've seen you know you've seen the, the powerpoint slides now and all these trainings where it's like individuality is white supremacy you know it's just like wow okay so there, there's no defending now, like now we couldn't defend our position that, you know, actually it's really important for us to keep the individual at the center of, of how we think about how trauma affects individuals. Um, and that that was like, okay, you're erasing group identities and you're erasing historical traumas. And we're like, no, we're not. We're just recognizing that, that people make meaning of those things in different ways. Okay. Just something you talked about, the critical consciousness now. I've used this comparison with it and, you know, I'm just going to bring it up. Like I know John McWhorter is writing his book about this and, and James Lindsay's written a few articles about how it's religion. I was like, one, and it was a, one of the first things I noticed when I got back, I'm like, you know, I was just like the first thing I was like, we have blasphemy laws again. Like what's going on? Like there, there's something weird going on here. Mm -hmm. Now 
I looked at the critical consciousness. Like when I started reading this stuff and I just started, started like finally getting into it. And I'm like, okay, that reminded me of like a bizarro Ezekiel. So like, yeah. you know, you know, this like, yo, Ezekiel pulls back the, the veil and sees paradise and, mm-hmm. you know, so he's seeing heaven and he's seeing something good, right? That's what's behind the world. I mean, like these people are seeing oppression mm-hmm. and I mean, it's, it's it, okay. Look, I'm an atheist, whatever, you know, like I'm probably like as a devout an atheist as you're going to find, but like, you know, I mean, for whatever I, I, my gripes are with faith, but like, you know, it offered you something good, mm-hmm. you know, it offers you a reward. And, you know, like, I, I don't want to get into the whole argument about that because like, I, even with that, like, you know, like, but there is something there, you yeah. know? No, I, I think that's a, a really important point because, because I think we take for granted in the West that the underlying structure undergirding a lot of people's presuppositions about meaning in life and in the world are a Judeo-Christian framework and and that that has provided a lot of um, a lot of good to society. Um, it doesn't mean that you have to ascribe to those religions to to understand the good and the meaning that that provides. But yes, this this theory that says, you know, it's just it's confirmation bias. If you start with a theory that says, there's racism inherent in every interaction and every structure, then yeah, you're going to find racism because you've already, your theory already says it's there. It's it's not asking, it's not an honest inquiry anymore about, is it there? It's saying it's there. And so it's like the seek and ye shall find, you know, they're going to find it everywhere. (laughs) Um, And same, same goes for now the other theories that are, that are, you know, all stemming from critical theory, like queer theory says, you know, that there's, there's there's queerness everywhere and there you know whatever it's like they're gonna find it everywhere so they're interpreting speaking of james Lindsay, i saw something you posted yesterday about this this conference around queerness in tolkien's work so the, the lord of the rings and there were all, these, all these papers about you know saruman being queer or whatever it's just like okay you know like that is this of course you're gonna find whatever you've already decided is there so yeah if, if you're if your worldview you know i am a christian so like i i'm really grateful for how you know Christianity is so centered around the dignity of every single human being and and the uniqueness of every single human being and um, that there is meaning in the universe and there is moral meaning in the universe and so I see those things everywhere and like how does that make me interact with other people and and how does that make me pursue doing justice in the world it's a very different framework than than saying you know like you said, peeling back the curtain and seeing that everyone is a racist is like, that's so cynical. <laughs> and what is the, how's that going to make you treat people? You know, if you, if you frame white people as having parasitic whiteness, you know, it's like, how's that going to make you treat white people? And how's that going to make you treat non-white people? You know, it's like, yeah. um, it's a problem. Okay. Sorry. I, I always go off on these little tangents, but so like getting back to your, like your, uh, your nonprofit. So, once like once i started seeing this stuff and i you know it took me like whatever you know, i'm working like going through life it took me a couple of years to figure out you know like even hear about critical race theory but once i started hearing about it i just started reading so like you know how long like had you been aware of any of this stuff before and did not paid attention or or did something click and then you went and started looking into this yeah um as I kind of alluded to, I was aware of this 
I, I didn't have language work. I think that's, you know, where a lot of people at are at still or have, are on a journey of like kind of being able to put language to what they see happening. Um, living again, you know, in the Pacific Northwest, I was around a lot of woke language and, and you know, um, signaling, but hadn't really tried to, to dig deep in reading about the ideas underneath these behaviors and language. Um, yeah, until probably about three years three or four years ago because of the heat within our organization around we need to be, you know, um, investigating systems of power and oppression within this organization and and transforming our organizational structures and our work around, you know, critical consciousness and, and the, the understanding that there is oppression inherent in, in every interaction, essentially. Um, so because that there because there was a real push to fundamentally transform our organization, I was forced to to start reading. And, and I, I think it was intersectionality was was a way in which um, a lot of these conversations were framed was around this idea of intersectionality. So that's where I started. But in reading the intersectionality literature, it led me straight to, you know, the the root of that, which was critical theory. And um, it, you know, it was a long it sounds, it, you know, when you put it in a Twitter thread and you were looking back on it, it sounds so neat and tidy of like, well, they were saying things and I looked into it and I figured it out and I did something about it. But it's like, it was a long, messy process of just trying to understand, you know, I really wanted to understand these were my friends. These were people that I had known for years who I respected and still respect. Um, but when people are telling you, I'm being harmed and you're harming other people. Like I would hope most people would take that seriously and not, not just say you're crazy or whatever, you know, cause it's like, if I'm really harming someone, I want to know. Um, and when you're not familiar with how that accusation of harm or where it's coming from, you do take it seriously. And I think that that's where a lot of organizations and companies end up going into just appeasing these demands is that they really there really is just a sincere intention to not do harm um but they don't understand that the definition definitions of safety and harm have been rewritten um okay just like so you, you so you, know, you said you saw this about I guess around like 2016 or so, like four or five years ago, roughly. So was that from, so I'm assuming if you're dealing with trauma and stuff, you have counselors and therapists and that kind of thing working, you know, social workers mm -hmm. or whatever. So was that from new people coming in or were some of the older people, like some of the people who'd been there for a little bit, were they starting to adopt new ways of doing things? Uh, okay. I'll, I'll, I'll back, I'll frame this in a, I worked up north, so I worked in an Inuit community. And, you know, most people who go there at the start of their career or the end of their career, they're never there, like, in the middle of their career. It's usually people who are just out of college, get a few years' experience in a remote community, you're doing, you know, so there's all kinds of stuff for social workers, you know, childcare workers, healthcare, and all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. Or it's people who go there to retire. So all the younger people that were coming up, everything I saw was everything was framed around victimization and up, up north, it was more of a post-colonial lens than it was anything else. But, mm -hmm. you know, and obviously like, you know, you know, colonies and like you had missionaries and all that up there. So it was, but mm -hmm. everything was framed through the lens of victimhood. And I'm like, I mean, like this can't, 
this isn't good for people. I mean, first of all, you can't live up, you know, in Northern Canada where it's frozen basically 10 months of the year. I mean, there's permafrost, you know, even in the summer, you can only dig about a yard down, then there's permafrost. I mean, you know, it's like, you can't live up there unless you're resilient and tough and hardy. And it's, mm-hmm. you know, so when you, when people who are supposed to be giving therapy or counseling are going in this way, like, I was just, I'm just curious, is it, if it was people coming out of you know schools or if it was like, or if it was a mix, like how did that work? I think it was a combination. It was um, licensed mental health care professionals who had graduated from institutions that were influenced by critical theory. Um, and it was new people coming in, you know, at more entry level positions, say, you know, doing administrative stuff for the organization who, who were, you know, just very woke. <laughs> and so then their demands, you know, young, young people in their early 20s or whatever, they're, they're more, you know, kind of um, confident assertions and things in staff meetings were then influencing these these um, professional staff members to be more willing to instigate some of the the changes that were being that were being demanded. Um, so it was kind of a combination. It was that the the mental health professionals themselves were influenced by critical theory, and then you had some people that were maybe more what you would call agitators or instigators who um, were perhaps less professional in their, <laughs> in their approach. Um, but then, but it was already there. I would say that the, the, the clinical people on the team were, were definitely influenced by that, that frame, that way of looking at things. Um, and it was just, I don't know, it's just, it's just picked up a lot of steam in the past years in terms of how I think people have felt emboldened to, to claim as, you know, you mentioned religious before, it's like none of these assertions are really measurable or falsifiable. They're just, they're ipso facto sort of arguments, but the fact has never been established. It's like, well, we already know that whiteness is oppressive. So now we need to do something about it. I'm like, whoa, 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 back up. Like, when did you determine, you know, and how would you, how would you prove that claim? Um, and it's just, I don't know, it just seemed like at some point there was a tipping point where they, they felt very confident to say that their their worldview was correct and that anyone who doesn't act um within that frame is is asleep or you know just unaware and needs to be educated and they're perpetrating harm by not um actively seeking to dismantle these systems of power and oppression so that that at some point we got to that point where they they just felt um they felt confident enough to to lay that accusation at our feet. The way you, you'd mentioned something earlier where, you know, they said, okay, you have to look internally and you know, the, your organization had to fix itself before it could fix others. Now here's my biggest beef with all this stuff. And so like, I don't know if this was correct or like, I, you know, like this is the way I see it. It's, you know, yes, I, it's an attack on civil rights. It's an attack on all that stuff. Like I'm not discounting that. And, but, my biggest problem with this is it's the biggest impediment to solving real issues. Like, you know, yes, there's a problem with racism. Yes. There's a problem with you know, whatever climate, but you're not going to mm-hmm. fix climate. If you start worrying about, you know, I, I don't want, I don't want to follow Greta anymore. Cause I want to have uh, activists of color. Like, okay. Like you, you don't need that. Right. 
like, like fix the goddamn problem. So the internal fixing, like everything is racist, but you know, we can't help anyone else until we fall, solve the problems internally, because if you haven't been doing it right through all along, it must be because there's racism inside. Right. So like, that's where I, I'm still not, I, I don't get how people who've, you know, either you've done degrees in psychology or you've got, you know, stuff in counseling or social work, whatever, like people who've, I understand if you've gone through like a complete woke education all the way through, like that's one thing, but these people who come in from like, you know, like you said, like administrative stuff and office managers and HR and like, you know, like those kind of like people who like meetings, um, you know, like if they, if they start saying stuff that's patently false, mm-hmm. wait, why doesn't someone just come up? Because I mean, like, you know, it's a huge statement to make that like, you know, I'm not saying that I don't know if they said that or not in your organization. Like, you know, like we are a racist organization, but like, I mean, like so many examples of that coming out, like, you know, like, like from knitting circles all the way up to like university campuses. Right. right? So it's like, but no, especially when if you've got, like I said, therapists and counselors, like people who are trained to deal with this kind of stuff, like, you know, wouldn't they just say, hold on a second. Like, where are you getting this from? Like that, like, well, you would hope, but they have believed the, the assertion that all knowledge is socially constructed. Like I, I, I really do think it was, it was partly the education that these professionals received that undermined their ability to continue to work in a way that is commensurate with the traditional approach to science, because they have truly believed that all knowledge is socially constructed. Like there are no objective, neutral, universal truths or, or facts anymore. It's, it's all social position, you know, it comes from your social position. And so, and this was the language that we kept hearing that it was just so foreign to somebody who's, who really is committed to this idea that, Hey, the best way to do no harm is to measure very carefully and to be able to show some kind of, of empirical data about, you know, what's going to work best for all people, because we all share the same biology. Um, you know, especially around trauma, you know, trauma, there's a biology of trauma. And that's, that's what our, how our organization has always operated is from, is from that biological frame. And so to have these more ontological claims coming in felt really unsafe. You know, it was, they were making claims about identity and about knowledge that felt more like religious philosophical claims. But then when we tried to say, whoa, it feels like you're trying to have a philosophical conversation, they were offended and said, no, no, this is from our clinical training. Well, it's like, okay, but the clinical trainings have been ideologically captured. That's what's going on. The clinical, these clinical programs and institutions like the American Psychological Association, they've been ideologically captured and they've, they've swerved out of their lane. And they're now dealing in, dealing with philosophical claims where they're, they're no longer, longer able to measure or falsify the things that they are asserting. And yet they're still licensing people. I mean, a great example is affirmative care. Like that has, that became at one point the standard for people being licensed. Um, and yet affirmative care, as we're seeing now is causing a lot of harm. And, you know, Benjamin Boyce has been interviewing a ton of people lately on his on his podcasts around both both clinicians and um, 
people who have been impacted by affirmative care. And, and so that was, that was one of the first issues with our team actually, where they said, you know, um, we're, we're not being careful enough around non-binary identities and we need to be making statements that are training around, around gender identity and all of this. And we were like, Whoa, we don't, we don't talk about identity at our trainings. We don't, we don't tell people things about their identity at our trainings. Um, and so, where is this coming from? And again, it was coming from their licensing bodies telling them that they had to do this. So, so the, the institutions themselves are ideologically captured. And I think that's where, that's where the people coming out of these institutions feel justified in claiming these things as fact, because it's what they've been taught. And the whole framework of knowledge being socially constructed is now just assumed. Um, and then when you come back at that with the more traditional, like, no, we're going to go on continuing to measure things and to quantify things and to use data, they will again say that's a very white, that's a white Western patriarchal way of thinking about knowledge. So they'll, un they just undermine entirely. I think it's, you know, people have called it a moral panic, but I've called it an epistemological panic because they're undermining people's ways of knowing. And then that leaves you just completely disoriented. Because you're like, how am I even supposed to establish anything now? Now, I'd like to get to how you started pushing back and like how you managed to like, because again, like I, from everything I've seen, it's not, you know, it's a, it's a small group of people raising a lot of noise and then it's other people just either not, you know, putting their head down and just going along or. Mm -hmm. kind of like sheepishly agreeing with it so like how did you you know how did you start like what did you do to push back against this stuff right um oh, an interesting critique that i have received many times on twitter since um sharing our organization's story is why didn't you just fire them right away and it's like well because they were claiming harm you know if an employee comes forward to the organization and announces to the entire organization you know it's inappropriate and it's in unprofessional to do it that way but if they said you know there is harm being done here it's really not advisable to just fire that person so it, it took some untangling of you know what these accusations were and was there anything some substantive in them so that's what we did. You know, uh, my husband is the executive director of the organization. He started meeting one on one with the employees who were saying these things and really trying to understand what their claims were. So that was part of it. Um, so that's where I would say, no, actually listening can be a good thing. Um, but where it becomes an impasse is if these people are no longer able to do the job they've been hired to do because of how much they're undermining the framework of knowledge or the, the entire um, <laughs> mission of the organization or the company because they they can no longer function in reality. Um, and so what I the approach that I took was we need to define terms because we're, we're not operating within the same realities anymore. And, and I just began doing research around, um, you know, if you wanted to define psychological safety, how would you do that? What, what, um, what work has been done in that arena to, to carefully um, define what true psychological safety is and what that looks like in organizations. So that was the first paper that I wrote and research for was around psychological safety, since we couldn't even have conversations at that point. You know, every time we had a group conversation around these ideas, afterwards, we get more emails and, and, you know, 
accusations, that conversation harmed me. That conversation was traumatizing. And so it's like, okay, like now we can't even talk because every time we push back against your ideas, we're, we're being accused of doing further harm. So um, yeah, I just think, I think we had a unique position of being the, the co-founders and having authority within the organization to, to force people to look at what they were asserting and whether there was any substance in it and to make them look at what we thought were reasonable, clear definitions of terms that were being, um, we saw misused, you know, or, or redefined. <laughs> and, um, and then with those redefinitions, making it impossible to function as an organization. So, um, so yeah, that was the approach we took, was actually listening to people, leaning in and listening to them about what their, their accusations were. And when we saw there was no substance really to the accusations that they were ideological claims, then we started just aggressively defining terms and, and, and making people look at, at those shared definitions of terms. Like I've been lately focusing a lot on schools, like K through 12. Mm-hmm. And again, when I started reading about this stuff, it was... You know, just to find out where things had gone off the rails, mm-hmm. basically, or what I thought was off the rails. But then when I started seeing it in education and, you know, colleges and universities are one thing. I mean, it's your adults, right? Like that's where you're supposed to be, at least anyways. <laughs> <clears throat> but, you know, around 2010, it got into universities. Uh, sorry, into high schools. In some high schools in some states around the you know around the around the U.S., like it wasn't a lot, but it was still. And some of these were like elite, you know, private high schools and things like that. And so these are people who are going to go to you know Yale and Harvard. And if you look at the timeline of when this stuff started becoming more public, it was around 2013, 2014. It started slipping off the campus, and it was becoming you're becoming more aware of it. You know, people outside the academy were becoming more aware of it. Like terms like safe spaces and microaggressions were starting to get around. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so if it's in high school in 2010, 2013, 2014, you've got people who've been through the, you know, been through a high school system with three or four years of that. Mm-hmm. You get to college, there's plenty of those groups around, you know, so you find more of it and it's just, so like do you have any concerns for like the future of things like what you're doing because you know it's fine fix the ama right now fix the apa right now like fix the you know like Mm -hmm. fix these organizations right now but if you don't fix universities if you don't fix the colleges of education you don't fix k through 12 and i don't mean just fix k through 12 like okay get this stuff out of it i mean fix k through 12 so more than 35% of kids graduate reading properly more than more than 22% of kids graduate being able to do math properly, you know, like, like fix them. Um, but yeah, I mean, like I'm looking at this, I'm like, you're going to have a generation of people who don't know how to do anything. Mm -hmm. And like, like, do you worry about, you know, your profession or. No. Yeah. It's definitely concerning. And there's going to be, the impact is going to stretch out over the next decade or more in terms of like you're saying, people are graduating from these institutions fully indoctrinated and they're going to go into positions of authority over our, our cultural and governmental institutions. And um, they're going to continue to educate others in these, these bad ideas. Um, 
but yeah, I just, I'm, I'm such a believer in objective truth and reality that I just think that things that are not built on the ground will fall. And I just think the more people are courageous in speaking out about, at, the more people understand these ideas and how faulty they are and how damaging they are, people need to be courageous and speak wherever they have a sphere of influence. And that gives me a lot of hope. I do think there will be a lot of collateral damage in the meantime, because there already is collateral damage from, from you know where these, these ideas have been embraced and how they're in, impacting people's lives and mental health and all the rest. Um, but I do, I do think that ideas that are so fundamentally misaligned with, with reality and with human nature cannot stand. I mean, it's just, you, you see people more and more and more just like saying like, whoa, I was, I was able to go along with this up to a point. And then, you know, it's just clearly getting so crazy. Like the, the assertions that are being made and, and the way this is making people treat other people it's just so terrible, you know, so like having their breaking point or whatever. Um, yeah. And I just, I think that I honestly think that the difference that will be made is if there were a thousand people in the entire, you know, I'll speak for my country, United States, who, who in positions of authority said, no, this is wrong. And I can explain why it's bad and, and courageously speak out, you know, within their, their sphere of influence. That's like all the difference that's needed. Um, but I think people, there's just so much pressure not to do that. And, and that you're, I think some people are still operating under this fear of, I don't want to be called a bigot or a racist or a homophobe or a transphobe or whatever. I don't want to be called all the things. So, mm -hmm. um, but you know, it's just, it's, it really is. I think it's, it's simple and maybe I'm, I'm naive, but you know, all the, the great myths of all the great stories are all about, you know, the, the, the lowly person who does the right thing and it turns the tide in the battle. And, and I just, I really do believe that there's a lot of truth to that. Yeah. No, I mean, like I, I look at all this stuff and I'm just, I worry about other things. Like I worry about, um, and it was, you know, one of the first things I said when I came back from overseas and started seeing this, I'm like, there's going to be an overcorrection. Like, mm -hmm. you know, like this was whatever. It was an overcorrection from things like the Tea Party or whatever, right? Like it was overcorrection from that. And then I, you know, then Trump got elected. I'm like, okay, maybe that's your overcorrection. There were people, you know, like there's a lot of people saying, oh, well, the, the excesses of the left are what led us to have Trump, blah, 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 blah. But then they did nothing about it. You know, then it was four years of orange man bad. Um, no, but it, it's true though. Like the people yeah. who admit it. So like, I'm just looking at all this stuff and I'm like, you let it go on. And, you know, that, what are you going to do? Like it's, it's. Um, yeah. I mean, it's, it's a huge, big, hairy mess. And like, yeah. you look at, you look at the military, you look at our government, you look at all the places that, that the tentacles of wokeness have made their way into very, very powerful, um, you know, institutions. And um, that is, that is harrowing. Um, it's sobering and we should take it very seriously. And I'm grateful for the people who are attacking at a high level and, and pointing out um, where the civil rights um, are, you know, civil rights movement is being undermined by now we're embracing discrimination again. Now we're embracing race essentialism again and, and stereotyping and scapegoating and all these horrible things. And 
there's that high level that needs to happen and and laws that need to be written and policies that need to be addressed. Um, but I really do just, I think the battle is fought at the level of people's communities and families. And that, that to me is what gives hope. And it kind of goes back to, again, what we were talking about with trauma is you can look at the big picture of the world and all the trauma that's happening and all the injustices. And you've, you've been there too. You've been in war zones and I've been there too. And it's overwhelming. But then when you interact with individuals and you see their strength and their courage and um, their willingness to show up in their family or in their community and and tell the truth and be courageous that is what gives me courage and it's what has i mean it's it's just remarkable that a thread like mine rippled out across twitter and then now into the real world of having you know people asking me to write articles and appear in podcasts simply because all we did was said hey this doesn't line up with reality and so no and it's like that that little act of courage within our sphere to say I'm not buying it. I'm calling BS and, and this isn't going to stand is it like people just need to do that. And I hope that that people will begin to see the emperor has no clothes with these ideas and that the accusations don't need to stick. You know, sure. If there's real racism going on, address it. If there's real bigotry of any kind going on, address it. But if people are calling you these names and you don't actually hold these ideologies and you're not actually a person who wants to oppress or or discriminate against people, do not let those attacks stick and just speak the truth. Keep it on the ideas and say, hey, like, we don't have to agree. You know, I can I can still dignify you and you should still dignify me, even though we have different ideas and we're gonna talk about the ideas and we're gonna keep it on the ideas and you're gonna have to substantiate your ideas and prove your ideas. I'm not just going to accept these claims that you're making. People, people just, I think need to, to speak up. I think that's the, the place that we're at. Okay. Now, like on the speaking up, cause I mean, there's like videos going out about parents and especially like mums speaking up mm-hmm. about what's going on in school and stuff like that. And, you know, you, you mentioned at the start as well, like the, you can't like the naming of it now. Oh, well that's not CRT, you know, like mm-hmm. that, like that. Like I equate this to, uh, you know, the science wars. So like when intelligent design was trying to get into schools and I mean, like, I don't know where your stance on that was, but I'm like, okay, that was intelligent design wasn't Christianity. Mm-hmm. Okay. But it was, I think it was Douglas Murray who used this term, whatever it was, it was Jesus smuggling. Like It was a way for, you know, fundamental like evangelicals or Baptists to get Christianity into K through 12 education. I mean, that's, that's what it was. And so no, the little spreadsheets with professionalism, blah, 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 as that's whiteness or whatever. Now that's technically not critical race theory. Like, you Mm -hmm. know, like, but that's, you know, it's like, whatever it's Kimberly Crenshaw smuggling or, you know, Ibram Kendi smuggling or whatever. Like it's, Mm -hmm. that's all it is. Like, that fight, like it, it's again, what I said with this stuff is like the biggest problem is it, it's an impediment to solving real issues. Mm-hmm. Like, there is a problem with K through 12 education. Mm-hmm. Now it's turned into an argument of whether or not the parents are fighting about critical race theory or not in schools. You know, first it was arguing about, okay, let's stop getting our kids to, 
you know, focus on race or gender or whatever, right? Like you can go down the list. To now it's like, well, okay, well, we're not even t- like, well, you're calling a critical race theory and it's not. Mm-hmm. So you're two levels removed from the problem of kids not being able to read and write. Mm-hmm. You know, so like right. it's, it's it's that with this stuff that, like I said, again, it's it's my biggest issue. Like, well, one of my biggest issues with it is it's, it's just, it makes you argue the least important things. Right. Like whether or not this is critical race theory, mm-hmm. it's like I said, in my mind, it's the same way as intelligent design. It is to critical race theory what intelligent design was to Christianity. And that's that's all it is. And I mean, like I said, I don't know where your stance on intelligent design was. And I, like, I, I don't particularly really care. But, uh-huh. you know, but that's that's where, like, that's the way I look at it. Like, it's your, and especially with the gender stuff. I mean, when you have, like, biology departments arguing whether or not, you know, there's two sexes, like, that, there's a problem there. Yes. Well, I, I think the point you're making is a really good point that people need to be able to name the presuppositions with which they come to an argument. And if they can't do that, they're operating from a position of faith that they have not carefully examined and that they are not able to be honest about because we all operate on faith. I am very, I am very firm on this statement because <laughs> I know that people who are atheists and, and people who would describe themselves as non-religious say, oh, no, no, I'm, I don't have faith. And it's like, well, no, do you, are you able to, to definitively um, make statements about the meaning of life or morality or um, destiny or all these questions that keep everyone awake at night and which we're all trying to to do our best to to operate within the way that we've chosen to understand and make meaning of the world and we're all doing that we're all bringing presuppositions I mean atheism is certainly not neutral it, it there are presuppositions in atheism so um, going back to just the smuggling idea yes there i think it's it's more important um to rather than to label these these ideas like well this is crt and this is bad it's like no look at look at the presuppositions that are being brought to the students you know this this idea that certain races have an inherent oppressive quality and certain races have an inherent oppressed quality is 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 race essentialism is attaching moral moral values to people's skin colors it's just disgusting you know it, it's it's going backwards and so um to address to, to make them make the argument for why what they want to do is good um rather than say critical race theory is bad and then there, there's this slipperiness that happens that where they say well i'm not doing critical race theory you don't obviously understand it critical race theory is a legal theory why would we be teaching a legal theory to kindergartners it's like no you know what you're doing you know you you're you're aware of what these ideas say and so make them stay on the ideas but that that assumes that they've actually examined the presuppositions in their theory which oftentimes they have not they 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 have assumed them to be fact but the facts are based on assertions that were never themselves you know verified and can't be verified or falsified because they are not in the realm of the empirical they're not scientific they're not quantifiable claims. So they're operating from a almost religious frame, but but proclaiming it as a sort of science and saying, well, we know these things. And so now the kids need to know these things. Um, so that's where I think the approach, and I've seen it lately from, from some people who you know have really put in a lot of work around um, addressing critical race theory and 
in the schools like Chris Rufo, um, where they're saying, you, you, if, if you want to be effective at fighting this fight, you need to know what the ideas are within the theory so that you can engage the ideas. Because just engaging the title of the theory, theory yes, they're going to be slippery and they're going to figure out a way to, to say, you don't know what you're talking about. You didn't define it correctly versus like, well, no, but I see I see the ideas that are that are manifesting and being taught. And I don't agree with those, these ideas on principle for these reasons. You know, um, I think that's the right approach. Yeah. And the, the yeah, like the, I guess the naming thing was just it's it just, it's just ridiculous. But one, like, okay, I don't want to keep you too too much longer. But one one of the things I want to talk about was this: that the like with with the kids, okay, they and I mean, you can we can take this going up, but now this experiment is being run, like this, like the the anti racism stuff. Where so when I say it's being run, like I said, this got into high schools in like what 2013, but in 2015, um. And I mean, I, there were other schools where they had this, but like this was one where you had the case study, you had it, we know what happened. So in 2015, this academy in New York City, where I think they pay like the number like 47,000 sticks in my head per year to send their kids there. Mm. So the academy is from K through eight, but they were doing this to kids from third grade to eighth grade. So f- they sent letters home to the parents asking the parents for the race of their child because there's also a lot of mixed race kids and how the child wants to identify or how they want to identify their child and then they split 45 minutes a week they split the kids up into racial groups they told all the except for the white kids they told all the other kids all the good things that their races had done The white kids, they were to- they they told them they were oppressors and they depressed everyone and they'd go, oh, you colonized the world, you did this, blah 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 blah, and and all you know like and all the other kids, they they told them that they were they were oppressed and it was the white kids that oppressed them, you know, or the white people that oppressed them, and all the kids started going online looking the great good things about my race, things like that. I mean, within a couple of months, they these kids were spouting off nationalistic, you know, like stuff. Like the white kids were sounding like white supremacists. It was, I mean, like I said, this is like third, like starting in the third grade for Christ's sakes. Yeah. I'm like, okay. And this is kind of where I was going with before where I completely like derailed myself. Um, like that overcorrection. Now, mm-hmm. I, I know there's a whole big thing now. Okay. James Lindsay's calling saying there's gonna be a white genocide or whatever, but like, I don't even want to get into that, but I'm like, forget that for a second. But, you know, if that happened to third graders, you know, and like you're going up to the eighth grade, that school is still like, it was still in the news like last year and the year before for like a lot of racial tensions. Like I think two of the, like two of the upper up, you know, like higher ups in the administration, quit or got fired or were you know forced mm-hmm. to resign. like it's a lot of stuff's been going on there don't you know there's gonna be a reaction to mm-hmm. getting white people to focus on a racial identity and there's, there's been a few there's been a few articles coming out about how there's becoming an in you know an uptick in people focusing on a white racial identity like white people and it's there was a i think it was 
the American Psychology Association or whatever, um, they put out an article about how there was a, a growth in racial identity in uh, Hispanic and black kids. And then they were starting to notice that starting to grow in white kids. Mm. You don't want that. Like I'm not talking yeah. about a white genocide or any kind of bullshit, but I'm just, you don't want like a majority white country to feel aggrieved because I mean, it's easy to take uh, like a, a paper that just came that that paper that came out, like the parasitic whiteness or whatever, that one that just came yeah. out recently. Mm-hmm. It's easy for someone like Richard Spencer to take that and rile people up, like, mm-hmm. especially when the economy's in the shitter and mm-hmm. it's, you know, people are hurting and things are going on. I'm like, okay, you've got an easy way to rile people up now mm-hmm. and forget about anything else. Like elite, like, you know, fine. It might not be everyone trying to commit a genocide against white people, but if you get a, a critical mass of crazies and if you have kids coming out of school, like learning this kind of shit, like what do you think is going to happen? In, right. You know? Well, and that's, that's, that's a great point because anyone who's studied history knows that every time we've attached moral significance to race, genocide usually is the result. And, and I don't claim that, you know, and, and James Lindsay did not claim that a white genocide was coming, even though that was what his words were construed to be. He said accurately that the language that was being used in papers like this and in the recent um, lecture at Yale by the, the um, psychoanalyst um, were genocidal language, the seeds of genocide in that language. And, and he clarified, I don't think a white genocide is likely to happen. Yeah. But, but that is language that in history, if you're a student of history, it will create it will create the kind of violent tribalism where people become deranged around these these tribalistic identities and they truly see the other as as inhuman at that point um and when you start calling people parasites and you start saying there's no there's no permanent cure was the language used Mm -hmm. in that that paper published in the american psychiatric association journal um that is that is really alarming. That is really uh, uh, incredible. That that um, a, a professional who's a dean at, at a, uh, a institute of higher education felt that that was an appropriate thing to publish in a journal um, was this this abstract that says that whiteness is this this parasitic condition for which there is no cure, um, and absolutely like we need to to call it what it is and it's not alarmist to say like hey i've seen this happen in the past i've seen very similar language used in the past and you're right it will create a a pendulum swinging far in the other direction and this is a white majority country it has nothing to do with whiteness whoever is in the majority in in a place where where racial tribalism becomes race essentialism becomes the norm the majority is going to, you know, have the advantage. And so, and so um, absolutely it's, it's in everyone's worst interest to attach moral qualities to, to race. And um, this is, this is just absolutely disgusting and irresponsible that, that people are, are saying that they're doing this in the name of justice. It's just total ignorance. And, um, and history bears out that that when this begins to happen, it, it it will only lead to violence. I'm not saying that, and and no one has claimed that you know a white genocide is is imminent, but um, it, it cannot lead in a good direction. Yeah, and I mean, whatever. I guess it's just one last thing on this. It's okay. So the recent attack, like anti-Semitic attacks, 
so mm-hmm. that happened now yeah the proximal cause was what was going on between you know israel and hamas right that's the proximal cause of that but in 2015, when you had the same, like I think it was 2015, maybe 16, similar thing happened with Israel and Gaza. You know, went on for a couple of days, rockets going back and forth, and you know, you didn't have the same level of attacks. Now, I, I mean, you really saw it last year, but even before that, for a couple of years, where oh, Jews are white. And then, I mean, the increase in attacks on Asians because Asians have taken on whiteness. I mean, they're, you know, like stupid things like yellow privilege. And there was this one thing, I don't know if it was in the Washington Post or the New York Times, but multiracial whiteness. Um, So, I mean, uh, yeah. yeah. So you equate whiteness with evil. Mm -hmm. You know, like last year during the, the riots, some of the BLM riots, synagogues got attacked. And vandalized, and it said like free Palestine and stuff like that. You know, and you had people like Nicole Hannah Jones saying, Well, you know, property is whiteness. So they're like mm-hmm. equating Jews. So it, it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. So yeah, more Jews are getting attacked because you've got a group now saying, like, they're not they're not being there's a whole segment now that's saying, okay, well, they're white, so it's kind of okay. Because you've demonized them, you've you've made being white, you've made whiteness evil, and you've described whiteness to these people. And I mean, like you know, like I said, it's going on with South and East Asians. Um, you know, like you know, people like John McWhorter and stuff like that. You know, like just you know, white adjacent, all this other bullshit. Like the like I said, multiracial whiteness. Like so, you're you've got that as well. Where now, okay, fine, we're not going to attack the majority but here's some other people who are you know because some of these people as well are like okay well i'm poor i'm 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 downtrodden i'm whatever like for whatever reason right like and that okay but so these people are taken from me as well so i can attack them like it's you know i mean hell you've like sorry i would round a little bit but you still got like articles coming out about how the attack you know black people attacking Asians, that's still due to white supremacy. There was an article in the New York Times, I think it was in 2019, it was uh, two South Asian kids beating up, two South Asian boys beating up four black girls, Mm -hmm. and they said it was due to whiteness. Mm -hmm. They still ascribed it to whiteness. So it's like, Mm -hmm. you know... Yeah, when you externalize guilt and responsibility that's what can happen so i think a big key to the solution is returning the locus of responsibility and the locus of guilt to the individual and and that's also empowering because it says you your actions determine your outcomes you know not your identities so you making the choice to to treat others the way you want to be treated to, to do what you need to do today to be responsible for yourself and, and others around you, to be generous, to be um, caring, to be a good listener. Like all of those things are within your power to do. And yes, there are factors that have meant that some people are starting with less than others, but that has been the case throughout human history, that we're, we're not all born into the same um, set of conditions of privileges, if you want to call them that, and we don't all end up with the same privileges. And and it is just ludicrous and hilarious to say that that equality of outcomes 
is should be a goal or is even possible, you know, given given all of our different um, makeup of, of the, the intellectual capacity that we have, the personalities that we have, even the desires that we have are not the same. Um, so so just returning that, you know, idea of the locus of of responsibility and of guilt being within the individual and and that that is that you know competence jordan peterson always is talking about competence um competence is the the fairest system that we can that, that we can get it's the closest to fairness that we can get is is do the best that you can to to improve your character to to grow virtue in yourself to be courageous to understand first of all what you believe to be true and then to speak it courageously to to listen to others well to treat others the way you want to be treated i mean it's all it's all kindergarten stuff it's all so simple but it's like it's the truth yeah <laughs> so, it's both sobering that we've gotten so far from that but it's also hopeful that i think one-on-one -on -one, when there, you know unless someone is truly psychotic and and you know has serious mental health um issues going on you can engage with almost any human being on these terms and there's an intuitive understanding that yes that is right that's that would be good and i know some people are so ideologically um indoctrinated at this point that it can take some time to get there but again i live in a place where these ideal ideologies reign supreme and i still am encouraged by being able to have conversations with people that expose the folly of these ideas and where is that going to take us and is this really what we want you know so again i just think that people in their spheres of influence people in their families and communities we all now have family members who have gone woke or co-workers who are woke or whatever we need to just be brave to push back and and part of that is being able to do that is is taking the time to understand the ideas so that you can push back in principle on the idea um, so it's not just saying, oh, I don't like that. Um, cause, cause then they're going to attack you and say, well, you don't like it because you're fragile about your masculinity or your whiteness or whatever. Um, and being able to make an articulate defense for why, why in principle, these ideas will not solve the problems of injustice and that there are other ideas that will better solve the problems of injustice is, is what people need to invest in doing, being able to articulate those things. Well, great. I mean, that's a good place to end on. So thanks a lot. If you want to let people know where they can get a hold of you. Sure. Yeah. Um, I have a Twitter account. The handle is graces for you. Um, yeah, that's, that's pretty much my online presence. <laughs> right. Yeah. Keep yourself a little bit sane. It's the off the other ones. Anyways, thank you very much again. It was great talking to you. Yeah. Likewise. Right. And thanks everyone for listening.